Good evening, everybody. Tonight we are on Parshat Mishpatim, and the t- class is titled The Secret of Reincarnation. The, the Zohar basically has this parasha as the parasha where it discusses reincarnation. It talks about the, the grandfather uh, and uh, goes through a lot of things. We're going to try to see how we can uh, simplify some of it and give us a, a feel of what's going on and uh, and what we can do. Uh, the interesting thing is that Mishpatim really is about Hashem repairing the failure of man's justice system. I also put down three strikes and you're out. The four elements of creation and man and the four legs of a table and the Shulchan in the Mikdash. So we, the, we explained last week and we, we touched upon uh, reincarnation with regard to the uh, Rabbeinu Ha'ari, the Ari Kadosh, who explains that Yitro is a reincarnation of Cain, Moshe of Hevel, and we explained how Yitro was fulfilling and making up for Cain. He had come back, and we saw the different incarnations of Cain, and each one had an opportunity, and each one went to its next level. So today we're going to get a little bit deeper into this whole idea of Gilgulim, of reincarnation, and see how it touches upon each of us individually. Now, when most of us started learning Gemara, when we were little kids, I don't know if it was fourth grade or, or probably fourth or fifth grade, we begin with the second chapter of the tractate of Baba Metzia. This chapter of Baba Metzia deals with property law specifically the laws pertaining to a lost object. It's interesting that we start little kids with the laws, the laws concerning monetary affairs. These laws concerning monetary affairs are called Choshen Mishpat in the section of Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. And they're considered to really be the meat and potatoes of a Talmudic education. The breadth and understanding that's required to analyze these subjects really surpasses all others. I mentioned another number of times that one of the aspirations I have is to get a level of smicha in Choshen Mishpat, in monetary laws, which is called Yadin Yadin. Yadin Yadin because it, it brings someone to the level that they could be considered a Dayan, a judge. The problem is to really get into the depths and understand monetary laws takes a minimum of six years and uh, probably more. And it's a process and we say, Bezrat Hashem, one day we'll get to that. So the question is, why do we start children at uh, eight or nine years old with property law? And we, we have to remember that, that ritual law that we practice, uh, laws of Shabbat, the laws of Brachot, seem like maybe a more pressing item for a little kid in school. But if we begin a chapter that is on the one hand applicable to all our lives, but at the same time not part of the ritual aspect, we're sending a message to the children, to our students, to ourselves, that the Torah demands integration. The holiness demanded of us cannot be achieved solely through ritual or conventional religiosity. So I find it interesting that our rabbis teach us also that the first question that a person is asked when he gets to heaven after 120 years is not if we observe, not if we did. Not, the question is very simple. They ask us, 
were you honest in business? Were you honest in business? Were you honest in monetary laws? In addition to Baba Metziah, we have the other Baba is also the, the main source for the laws of damages. And that's called Baba Kama. The Gemara and Baba Kama, in it, Rav Yehuda says, a person who wants to be pious, a Sadiq, a Hasid, should observe the matters of the tractate of Nezikin so as to avoid damaging others. If a person wants to be considered a pious person, he should learn these laws of damages. Ravan, the other hand, said, you want to be pious? Learn Pirkavot. Learn to be a good guy. Learn to be respectful. Learn to do all the things that a person needs to do. There's the ethics that a person needs to live by. Some say, that if you want to be a pious person, a sadiq, you should learn the laws of brachot. You want to be pious, understand how to bless Hashem, how to appreciate the things we have. Now we can understand that if a person learns perkavot, if he learns really all of the ethics, if he goes through all of that and practices that, he's going to be a sadiq, even a person who's going to study brachot, relate to Hashem, thinking of Hashem, appreciating, thanking Hashem, appreciating Hashem, that person's a sadiq, but how do we understand that a person who studies the laws of Nezikin, of damages, is going to begin. Is that that person's going to be uh, considered a Sadiq? Now, if we begin the, the Baba Kama, I remember even in class that the kids used to tell, well, what do we have to learn about an ox and a, and a hole? And a, what do we have to learn this stuff for? And the, the, the Mishnah begins really, it says there are four primary categories of damage. What are the four? There's the ox shore, there's the pit bore. There's mave, which we translate as tooth. So it's the, the damages an animal will cause by eating, you know, digging up his neighbor's uh, grass. And the final category is fire. You have these four categories. How do we understand these four categories? And following these four categories will make a person a chassid. Most beautiful explanation appears in the Sefer Netivot Shalom. It says the four ways the evil inclination approaches a person. Oh, hold on. The four ways that the evil inclination approaches a person to damage him, to cause him to stumble, are expressed here. What are they? Sure. What do you mean, sure? Send the guy an ox? No, but an ox is considered a haughty animal, a bull, right? He has pride, ga'ava, haughtiness says that a person has to be careful because one of the methods of the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, is to get you through pride. Pride causes tremendous, tremendous damage, causes a tremendous amount of people to sin. The second category is called bore. Bore is the antithesis, the opposite. It's the pit, the pit of depression. We pray every day in the Amidah, Hashem should protect us from Yagon, sadness and depression in the Sidur it's interesting because we see that above Yagon and Anacha we have the Satan and his wife meaning these are the methods that a person that the Satan uses to destroy a person you get a person depressed he can never be successful he slides into this pit of sadness it leads to Yehush she gives up it's over so these are the first two methods haughtiness or depression the third is Maveshen, tooth. 
damage through the mouth. Two ways. What comes into the mouth, also what goes out of the mouth. The words that we say, how much it could damage us. The fourth way is fire. The rabbis explain what is fire, lustful passions, also anger. So the rabbis are saying that a person who could overcome these four things, the haughtiness, depression, this, the, the ways of speech or what he's going to eat and tavot and lustful passions and anger, if a person could overcome these four headlines, that person's considered a sadiq. And these really represent the challenges in a person's life. So if a person wants to fulfill this idea of being a pious person, a sadiq, we understand he should fulfill the laws of nizikin. And this explains what I'm supposed to do. I have to uproot those bad behaviors. I have four approaches, four damages. And some apply more to some of us than others. Some of us are rooted in gava, and that's the thing we have to work on. Some of us get pressed down in depression, and that's what we have to work on. Each of us has, some of us have this aspect of lack of self-control in the way we speak, in what we eat, in what we do. Each of these things is a challenge for us to overcome. Let's keep this in mind as we're going to go into the depths of the Kabbalah. I think it's important to, to have this concept of these four ideas, these four ways of damages, and how they relate to each and every one of us and how we have to work to protect ourselves. So we read this week, These are the laws. And remember, we have different types of laws. We have chukim, laws we don't understand. Mishpatim are really supposed to be laws that we understand. Unculus explains, These are the laws you should place before them in an orderly fashion. Rashi, quoting the Gemara, says, Asher tasim lifnehem, That you should place in front of them. And he says, Hashem said to Moshe, It shouldn't enter your mind to say, I'll teach them a section of the Torah or a single halakha two or three times until they become comfortable with it. And they could, they could know it verbatim. They could repeat exactly what I said. But Hashem is telling Moshe, you have to take the trouble to make them understand the ta'ameh. The reasons, I remember my father used to say tam, the taste of something, the taste of the food, the ta'ameh, the reasons of each thing and its significance. And therefore, the Gemara explains, you place a sher tasim lifnechem, you place in front of them, like a set table, keshulchan aruch. And this is our code of Jewish law, it's called shulchan aruch, based on these words. The laws are supposed to be placed in front of you like a set table. Rambam, he says that it's appropriate for a person to explore the Mishpatim and comprehend them as thoroughly as possible based on his own abilities. And he specifically employs the term Mishpatim alluding to this verse. We have to realize that this detailed system of laws is intended to solve an existential problem. What's the problem? The problem of injustice in our world. You know, we go through the laws of Mishpatim and there's so many one after the other. We begin with a Hebrew servant. We, begin, we go there from a man who has to sell his daughter and what happens to her. We go into the laws of someone who kills intentionally, someone who kills unintentionally. And we have to understand 
what we have here in Mishpatim is not meant to prevent such things from happening, but rather to address them in a manner that will limit the degree of injustice inherent in them. And it will prevent the whole, the whole situation from becoming overwhelming. So we know if a person has to sell himself into slavery, he stole something, perhaps he couldn't pay it back. The law is if he steals, he has to pay back double. If it's an animal, four times. If it's a certain animal, five times. It says what happens? He has to sell himself into some level of servitude. But it's only for up to six years. And in the seventh year, he's going to be set free. A girl who's sold into servitude, it's really she's being meant to be sold so she can sort of find the husband in the, in the master's son. The individual guilty of homicide is going to be punished. The individual who committed manslaughter accidentally is forced to go to a Ir Miklat, a city of refuge. Even though we know that a murder victim could never be uh, could never be brought back, at least in, in 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 the life that we saw, the law is aimed at creating a certain partial moral balance. We use the very same means by which the law was created, whether which the law was, was violated in order to fix it. So, if chaos was created by means of violence, the law is also going to apply some level of violence. But this attempt, which is limited by its very nature to shape and discipline the chaos, actually emphasizes the injustice that is inherent in man's daily daily reality. After all, you could ask, why was the person murdered in the first place? You know, one of the examples is is a guy is taking his uh, axe and he's chopping down the tree and he never inspected to make sure that the axe head was held in tightly and the axe head goes flying and kills another guy. Or a guy was climbing up a ladder, the ladder broke, he landed on the guy, kills the other guy. Why did the first guy die in the first place? What did he do? Just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time? How does an individual become so impoverished that he's forced to sell himself into slavery? What's going on here? But the law seems to be uninterested to answer any of these questions. It simply attempts to supply those who suffer because of these questions with a solution that will enable them to continue in their life. The Zohar, on the other hand, comments on this this week's perasha, and it seeks to remove in some way the veil from the range of metaphysical reasons that lead to injustices. What's it written in in the Zohar? Based on this, the Zohar says these are the arrangements of reincarnation, the laws of souls that are judged, each and every one of them in accordance with their respective punishments. So what the Zohar is saying, there's something more here than meets the eye. So I saw Dr. Yaakov Meir. He notes something very interesting. He says that the injustice, which according to the Zohar is inherent in the human world, what is it? It's simply an expression of a cosmic order that Hashem creates by means of Gilgulim, by means of reincarnation. If a certain individual commits a sin, 
his soul will be transmitted to another individual who will suffer in a manner that will cancel the sin that the first individual committed. So I couldn't fix it in my life. I come back again and I'm able to fix it there. Originally, lives were very long, a thousand years, and they got shorter and shorter because we realized we could only do so much and we had to be able to fix it. And if we couldn't fix it, Hashem said, okay, come back again and fix it in another, another way. But if I'm going to mess up the first time and I come back the same, I'm going to mess it up the second time, how do we understand how that works? We're going to get to that. Now, from the standpoint of the victim, the injustice appears to have been committed against them for no reason whatsoever. But if we knew the real reason for the injustice, if he knew the real reason for the injustice, that person would understand that what's taking place constitutes authentic justice, fixing the system. The system of Gilgulim, of reincarnation, seems to serve as a court of Hashem's justice. The Zohar's method for providing meaning to an injustice is to describe it as a verdict that was passed for a crime that was concealed from our own eyes. How do we understand this on the simplest level? There are a number of versions of the following story. I found a different version. I'm going to tell it this different version now. Once the rabbi, Rav Dov Ber, who was known as the Magid of Mezerich, he was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. The story is, he asks his teacher, he says, Rebbe, would you teach me the sod, the spiritual foundation of Gilgulim, of reincarnation? So the Baal Shem Tov takes him to his study, and he tells Rav Dov Ber to close his eyes. So each of us, let's try to close our eyes and imagine this scenario. There's a handsome prince. He's there with his female friend, and they come to a river for a picnic and a swim. The only other person there is the border guard on duty because this river separated two countries. They leave their things by the tree. They go swimming. And the, the prince and his friend, after they have their picnic and they finish their swim, they change back into their regular clothing and they leave. But the prince didn't realize that he had a coin purse that was in his pocket. And as he was changing from his bathing suit back to his clothing, the coin purse fell where he was later that day, coming to the tree to sit by the lake and to have maybe a quick rest. There's a man on a horseback. And as he comes to the tree, he notices a purse of coins on the floor under the tree. He picks up this nondescript purse. There's no name on it. There's no nothing. It's just a pouch. Sees there's a bunch of gold coins, very valuable. Quickly sticks it in his pocket, doesn't say anything to the border guard, and he continues on his way, the merrier. The prince gets back to the palace and realizes his coin purse is gone. He tries to remember, when's the last time I saw it? And he remembers, I did have it when I was by the lake. The only other person who was by this lake at the border was the border guard. That guy must have seen me drop my purse, picked it up and kept him. 
So what does he do? He leaves the palace with a bunch of soldiers. He arrests the border guard. The border guard denies seeing the purse, much less taking the purse. But the prince is very arrogant. He doesn't believe him. He tells his soldiers to punish him. They tie the border guard to the tree and beat him with 30 lashes. See this story. Rav Bear says, Rabbi, this is just so unfair. He says, why did the prince lose his money? Why did the border guard get the lashes? He didn't do anything. The whole story is not right. The whole story is not fair. How can you allow such a thing to take place? So what happens? So the, the Baal Shem Tov turns to him and he says, you asked me to teach you the sword of Gilgul, of reincarnation. Now close your eyes again and I'm going to take you to another place and you're going to see another story. This time, he said, one man approaches a second man and says in a very angry tone, it's been a long time. I loaned you money. I want you to pay me back the money I lent you. It's not fair. We agreed to terms. You said you would pay me back. You never paid me back. And the first man says, and the second man says to the first, money, borrow, me, you. That must have been someone else. I never borrowed money from you. Leave me be. The first man gets in an argument and says, you're a liar. How can you look into my eyes and say you never borrowed money from me? You know, I thought we were friends, but you leave me no option. I'm taking you to court before a judge. You're a miserable creature to deny that you owe me money that I loaned you. <clears throat> Go Fast forward the story. It's easier. We put this in a movie, right? And Rav Bear sees the second man who denies the loan. He goes to the judge, takes some money out of his own pocket, hands it to the judge, and he says to the judge, Now you remember, whatever proof he tries to bring you, I never borrowed anything from this guy. And the judge looks at the money, and as he counts out his gold coins, he answers, You don't have to worry about a thing. Later during the day, there's a trial. The plaintiff brings written proof of the loan, a paper the guy signed. The man denies it's his signature. The judge says, Can't prove it's really him. Don't know if it really is. Can't prove it at all. I deny the claim. I rule for the defendant. He doesn't owe you any money. And then the dreamlike vision is over. The story is over. So we have three stories. We have the first story about the prince. The second story about a guy borrowing. And the third story about their court case and the judge. He says, again, that wasn't fair. He says, how could the second man get away with not paying his debt? How could the judge get away with being so evil? And the Baal Shem Tov says, this is the sword of Gilgul. The first man that lent the money and didn't get it back in the second dream, he was the man on the horseback. It was his money. He was owed the money. So in this life, he got back the money from the prince. 
the second man who borrowed the money and refused to pay it back, he was the prince. And so it really was his money that he had to give over. And who was the guard who got beat for doing nothing? He was the judge who came back and got what his due was, the 30 lashes. So on the simplest level, this is the sword of Gilgul. It says, the Baal Shem Tov provides the Magid of Mezrich with an example of how the secrets of reincarnation work. He allows the Magid to see an incident of seemingly absolute injustice. And he reveals to him the hidden realm of reincarnation. With his new perspective, the Magid realizes that what he thought was injustice was actually the metting out of true justice. And that the real injustice had been committed in the past, but that was concealed from him. What we need to remember here is that the injustice originated in the human system of justice. That's what happened. In our, our way, we thought we were doing right, right? The judge erred in his verdict. He handed down. He exempted the debtor from repaying his debt and he sent everyone on their way. For this reason, Hashem had to bring back those souls of all three to the forest. Hashem had to create a situation that only appears to be an example of injustice in order to restore the world to its previous state of harmony. What's amazing is that when we go to a deeper level, Parshat Mishpatim depicts not the manner in which man corrects the natural injustices in the human world through an earthly justice system. Remember, one of the mitzvot of Shiva Mitzvot B'nai Noach is to create a justice system. We have to deal with things on our level. But we see underlying that it's absolutely the opposite. Mishpatim depicts the way in which Hashem corrects the injustices that man creates through unsuccessful attempts to correct reality. So this sword of Mishpatim is that it provides man with laws so that he could use them to manage the justice system. But man's failures return that privilege to Hashem. When we fail in our own justice system, what does Hashem have to do? He has to pick up the pieces and he has to put it all back and make it all fixed. He says Hashem himself has to intervene. He has to correct the injustice that man creates. Hashem provides us, he provides man with laws so that we can use them to manage the justice system. But when we fail, that privilege returns to Hashem who must intervene and correct the injustice that man creates. Let's go a little deeper. The six years, buys a Hebrew slave. Six years he should work. What are the six years? These refer to the six sefirot of Zeranpin. Chesed, Gburat, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yisod. If the soul is from the side of the Shekhinah, which is the seventh, then it says, he says, He goes out free. A person whose soul is from Machut, he has no work like the aspect of Shabbat, which has no slavery. And the Zohar goes into depth of each of these layers. But we're going to see Parshat Mishpatim really gives us the secrets of the Gilgul and the ability to have the power to go through our own Gilgulim with success and correct as much as we can. So we're not going to go into the nitty-gritty of each level of soul, but we're going to touch upon it. Rabbi Nohari said, 
that if a person did not follow his tikkun, his corrections, it's as if he didn't live out his life. He wasted his life. We used to ask Rabbi Abitan, Rabbi, why am I here? The one, one guy wanted to know, oh, I'm going to go to the Mekubal, I'm going to go to the Spook, I'm going to go to the person who reads the tea leaves. And I'm going to ask them, what am I here for? What's my purpose? What's my Gilgul? Why did it come back? And the rabbi would say very simply, you don't need to go to any of these people. You need to look at yourself. You need to look where it's hard, where you feel uncomfortable. You have to look at what's the most difficult thing for you to overcome, and that's probably why you're here. On Sha'ar HaGilgulim, Rabbi Pinchas Winston, he writes that when a person is born, his nefesh, the lowest level of his soul, enters him. If he can adequately rectify through his actions this level, then what happens when he becomes, uh, when he becomes a 13-year-old, his ruach enters him. If he could fix the ruach, when he becomes 20, the neshama enters him. This is the ideal situation for most people. They can't correct all three in one lifetime. Very rarely is it possible. So what happens is they have to correct one, leave, and come back, correct the next, leave, come back, correct the next one. And we have to know that uh, until a person is able to rectify all the different parts of his soul, that person has to keep coming back. Now we have to remember also that if a person rectified his nefesh and he comes back to fix the ruach and he messes up he doesn't mess up the nefesh once you fix something it's fixed but he has to work on the next level and Arizal goes into the number of chances and we're going to try to understand a little bit how that works so there's many more details just in order to understand the standard process of Gilgul of, of reincarnation of tikkun of rectification However, it turns out there's more than one type of Gilgul. We talked about in other classes, Ibur, and we'll talk about those more in the future. But let's go a little bit deeper into the idea we started with. This is a subject we touched upon a couple of years ago, and I wanted uh, to try to better understand it. It's really, really an unbelievable thing because the way the rabbis explain it, it really shows how we can fix and we have a chance to fix the things we need to fix in the lifetime. The Zohar says, Amar Rav Shimon says, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, This perasha begins, as we mentioned, These are the laws which you should place in front of them, like we said, Unkulu says, placing them in front of them, and Rav Shimon Bar Yochai says, this is the Sod Gilgul. Each soul is judged, each receives its punishment. What does he mean? He's referring to the order of judgments and punishments that dictate the reincarnation of Neshamot. Each person always gets exactly what's due. We said Rashi writes, put it in front of them like Shulchan Aruch, like a set table, everything laid in front of them. In a past, we asked the question, why does it say Kishulchan Aruch, like a set table? If you're putting it in front of them, you should say put it in front of them like food. Food has ta'am, ta'amim, mitzvot, the reasons of the mitzvot, the taste of the food. Really, it seems that you should make the mitzvot like food, and then we understand them better. Why is it specifically compared to a table? What's so special about a table? The Gemara Berachot tells us 
while the Bet HaMikdash stood. The Mizbeach, the altar, provided B'nai Yisrael with atonement. Now that there's no more Bet HaMikdash, how does B'nai Yisrael achieve atonement? How does a man achieve atonement? Says the Gemara, through his table, through his Shulchan, through his Shulchan. So we always understood this, that how does a person achieve when a person is a good host, when a person has guests, when a person is nice to other people, that's the tikkun, because he has them over as guests at his table. Remember, the Rashi quotes that uh, in France, in the, in the Middle Ages, in his times, there was a custom that a person, when he passed away, he would take his dining table, they would turn it into his coffin, so he should be able to take his mitzvot of hospitality with him. We have to understand a deeper reason. <laughs> Reb Chaim Vital writes in Sha'ar HaKavanot in the name of his teacher, Rabbeinu Hari, I saw always that my blessed teacher was very careful that whenever he would eat, he would eat at a table. And whatever table he ate at, that table always had four legs. A four-legged table, like the Shulchan, like the table in the Bet HaMikdash. Says we know, and this is what Rabbeinu Chaim Vital writes: Hashem created man out of four basic elements: fire, wind, water, and earth. Esh, ruach, mayim, afar. These four elements correspond to the four letters of the name Havaya: the yud, the hey, and the vav, and the hey. Had man not sinned with the etz hadat, with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, his body and his soul would have existed in perfect harmony with regard to these four elements, and he would have lived forever. But when Adam sinned, which is all of us, because all of our souls were incorporated in the soul of Adam Harishon, the four elements were infused with a mixture of tov vera, of good and evil. Consequently, it was decreed that man has to die due to the separation of the elements from one another. Similar to the explanation we started with on the four types of damages, Rabbeinu Ari goes on to explain how all of the human attributes stem from these four basic elements. So remember we started out with Shor, Bor, Maver, and, uh, and, and Ish. He says that here it follows that all the negative attributes can be divided into four categories. For example, explains that Rabbi Anahari, haughtiness and anger stem from the evil aspect of Ish. Idle speech, Lashon Hara, from the negative aspect of Ruach. Earthly cravings and desires from the negative aspect of Mayim, which just flows uncontrollably. The negative aspect of afar, of dirt, of dust, gives rise to sadness. We talked about yagon and anacha. This results in a person's laziness, indifference towards Torah and mitzvot. And the opposite is also true. The good, the positive attributes originate from the good aspects of the four elements. Humility stems from fire, correcting the tendency towards haughtiness. He explains being silent, mute, except when occupied with Torah and mitzvot, 
corrects the negative aspect of ruach, of wind, the source of speech. Self-control and physical delights and excesses, it correlates against the negative aspects of water. Being happy and content with what one has, knowing full well that everything is from above, from Hashem, is the correction and the tikkun, the repair of the negative aspects of earth, which is the source of sadness. This includes motivating a person's self to serve Hashem with joy and happiness. So we begin to appreciate the explanation of Tikkun Zohar regarding the sacrifices. Why do we bring a korban? Explains in Tikkun Zohar. The purpose of offering a korban is to make amends for the damage one's transgressions, one's sins have caused to the four basic elements. Within bringing the korban is a tikkun for the esh, the ruach, the mayim, the afar, the fire, the wind, the earth, and the and the water and the earth. Earth, wind, fire. Earth, wind, and fire. Water. We're going to have a fourth person. Okay. He writes that causing a defect in the four elements as we mentioned, is the same as inflicting a wound on a person's soul. This affliction causes the four elements to separate. So what do we have to do? We have to repair that. Because the element of fire separates from water, the element of wind from earth. The result of the separation is conflict and a lack of harmony. When we say Hashem brings priests to the, to the heavens, this is when He's bringing the fire and the water together. These opposite things are coming together. When we break them up, this causes the name of Hashem. We said each of these was represented in one of the letters of Havaya, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. And this allows the Yetzir Hara to enter a person. For Hashem does not dwell where there is conflict and disharmony. If there's no shalom, Hashem's not there. When there's no shalom, there's a vacuum and enters the yetzerara. What do we do? To remedy the situation, we bring a korban from the elements that have been impaired. When harmony is restored in the elements, Hashem immediately returns, forcing Satan, the yetzerara, to flee. If he does not flee, what would happen? He would be consumed by the fire of the korban. So it appears that we could reinforce this concept by suggesting how offering a korban is going to rectify the four elements. How? The element of esh, of fire, is rectified by what? The fire on the mizbeach. The element of ruach is corrected how? We put our hands on the, on the animal and we say a confession. This is the ruach, the words. The element of mayim is through the salt. Which says Hashem made a deal with the water that through the salt and through the libation that we pour on uh, on Sukkot, the, the the water is represented in the in the mizbeach. The element of afar, where is that? It's the clearest. Last week we finished the Berashat to tell us when you build the mizbeach, you build an altar. You have to build the altar out of dirt. The Kedushat Levi writes concerning the Gemara and Pesachim. Also that a korban has to be inspected for four days prior to slaughtering it to ensure it doesn't have flaws. And he explains that what's the purpose of these four days? 
that each of those four days a person is required to prepare himself to sanctify each of the four basic elements and to elevate them from the status of an animal to that of a human being. Imagine on each day he has to contemplate and self-respect on one element, how it relates to him and how he has to overcome that flaw. The idea of, a, of, a, of bringing a korban is not simply bring the animal, kill it, all good. It's the process, the process of self-reflection, the process of self-examination, the process of contemplating all of these elements coming together and our responsibility to bring them back together. This really helps us to understand to some minor degree. While Rabbi Hadi said, you have to eat on a table with four legs. Today's table atones for a person in place of the Mizbeach. The Korban is allowing us to rectify the four elements alluding to man's four basic elements which require tikkun and atonement. This helps us to understand why Hashem instructed Moshe not only to teach Bnei Yisrael the halachot, but to review it with them until they understood the reasons and the rationales behind them. The reasons underlying the mitzvot are compared to a shulchan aruch, a set table, ready for man to eat at, to eat off of. Perhaps we could assume that a person should be performing the mitzvot simply because the king commanded a chok. Hashem said, do it, we do it. And that's really, you know, bottom line, we say, but nevertheless, we learn that the purpose of the mitzvot is to rectify and sanctify the four basic elements which comprise a human being. Eish, fire, ruach, wind, mayim, water, afar, earth. So it's imperative that a person examine the reasons behind the mitzvot. He has to recognize which element relates and which he has to rectify relating to that mitzvah. It's for this reason that Hashem told Moshe, teach B'nai Israel the rationale behind the mitzvot. Even though all the laws of the Torah decrees, it's still necessary to explore them. Anything you can find a reason for, you have to search for. That's why we have books, Ta'ameh mitzvot, Sefer HaChinuch. We have so many things to study to help us to understand. According to the Ramban, the purpose of the mitzvot is to refine a person. Nachmali says to refine a person. To find what? His negative attributes. The Ramban writes, The purpose of the mitzvot is not for Hashem's benefit, but for our, for man's benefit, to protect man from harm, from the, from the negativity of the negative attributes. According to what we learned, the purpose of the mitzvot is to refine the four basic elements in man's makeup. Now let's go back to the Zohar Kadosh. You begin the parashah Unkulu says, like a set. Rav, Rav, Rav Shimon says that it means these are the orders of reincarnation, the laws of souls. Each one is judged to receive its punishment. Now let's see how this concept is presented by our teacher of Pinchas Friedman. And he quotes the Sefer, Binat Yisachar. It's well known from the Zohar Kadosh that, and, and really many other Kabbalistic literature, that like we mentioned, Hashem sends a person down to earth several times in various incarnations. What's the purpose? 
The purpose is to correct what he had a defect in the previous life. But the question comes up. Hi, Yosef. The question comes up. What is the point of sending man down again as a Gilgul? What is the point of sending man down again as a reincarnation? If he messed up in the first life, then he's just going to mess up the same way in the next life. Not only that, he's going to add sins to the next resume. He's going to... It's just not going to be worth it. So it would be preferable if a guy is just going to come down again and face the same challenge and mess up again. Why send him down again? Leave him there. But what do the rabbis explain? Something unbelievable. That a person who was originally born with the attribute of gava, of haughtiness, of pride, will likely pursue honor and respect and be jealous of anyone that is greater and more important than him. A person who's born with the trait of stinginess, he's a miser, he's going to refrain from doing tzedakah, acts of kindness. Everyone's sins, explains the Mikubali, are rooted in the bad midot that were inherent in his nature from birth. And therefore, the Binati Sachar concludes something absolutely amazing. He says that when Hashem reincarnates a person, it's such an incredible gift because He brings him back into this world, into a body with midot opposite of the midot of his previous body. Opposite the midot, opposite the characteristics of his previous incarnation. Explaining... If he previously possessed the trait of being stingy, he's going to reincarnate into a body with the, with the trait of being a spendthrift. If he was very haughty and arrogant, he's going to reincarnate into a person who's humble. Consequently, the person is more likely to improve his lot by means of reincarnation than to cause further damage. He's given the opportunity not to go only against what was, but the opposite of what it was. Let's jump to Tikkunei Zohar. It says there, HaKadosh Baruch Hu subjects the soul of the sinner to three reincarnations and no more. So I always wondered, what is it? If he fails to accomplish the necessary Tikkun for his flaws, in those three attempts, his only recourse is Gehina. We always noted that we said, you know, three strikes, you're out, or one up, and then three strikes, you're out, hi, Amalia. Then the, the essence is you're getting the fourth strike, or you're going to say, you know, okay, baseball, I don't know baseball, we just had the Super Bowl, four downs, you get four downs, first down, second down, third down, fourth down, you don't make uh, the first down, you're done. But with what we've learned, if we include man's initial appearance and his initial lifetime on earth, and he adds the other reincarnations, it turns out that a person can visit the world four times to correct himself at each level. We could postulate that each visit was meant to rectify one of the four basic elements. Based on the nature of the four elements, we can expect the reincarnations to follow a logical order. For instance, suppose during a man's first existence, the element of Aish prevailed. He exhibited terrible midot, all from Aish. 
He was arrogant. He was angry. He was overly strict. What would Hashem do as a gift? He's going to reincarnate him in a body where the element of Mayim prevails. For Mayim is the opposite of Ish, water, the opposite of fire. Therefore, he's no longer inclined toward the bad Midot stemming from Ish. Thus, he would be likely to correct the defect and the damage caused in the previous existence. And if he fixes it, boom, first down. He's going to merit the ascension to the next level. <clears throat> but if he fails again during this first reincarnation and he falls a victim to the bad midot arising from Mayim, and what do we say, the bad midot of Mayim? Lust, coveting, jealousy. Hashem's going to say, okay, he messed up as Ish. He messed up as Mayim. Let's give him another chance to come back as Ruach. So he's no longer going to be drawn to the negativity of Ish and no longer drawn to the negativity of Mayim. Let's give him a chance to rectify through Ruach. And if he fails again, he's gonna, and, and if he fails again and he wasted his time and he spoke Lashon Hara and he lied and he behaved sacrilegiously, then Hashem says, Hazit, the poor guy, he messed up the Ish, he messed up the Mayim, he messed up the Ruach. Let's give him a chance at Afar. And therefore, he's not going to be drawn to the other bad habits he had the other way. So if he corrects the damage in his, from his previous lifetimes through the afar, if he just deals with the afar, if he overcomes the sadness and laziness, perfect. And if not, really at this point, there's almost no reason to bring him back again. He already visited the world four times, each time in a different body, each time personifying one of four distinct basic elements and if he was unsuccessful in rooting out and overcoming his bad midot in these four attempts, what's the point of bringing him again? Therefore, Rashbi, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai explains, the purpose of teaching B'nai Israel the reasons of, un of underlying the mitzvot is why? To spare them the ordeal of this process of reincarnation again and again. The vital knowledge and tool will allow us to rectify the four basic elements without the need for the additional three reincarnations. This really is the whole idea. The idea that we have here in Mishpatim. Hashem is giving us a chance. Hashem is fixing what has to be fixed. Hashem is putting everything into the motion. So on a cosmic level, it's to fix. But on an individual level, we have an opportunity to fix ourselves each in our lifetime. And if we mess up in one, we're given an opportunity to come back, but not facing exactly the same challenge, facing the opposite challenges, which really helps us. And then we're given a chance again and given a chance again. What an unbelievable level of chesed this is from, from Hashem. It's really an unbelievable level of chesed. I just want to close one final story. A couple of minutes left. I just want to close with one story. A question came up a few years ago. I was in Florida. So we talked last week about the Gilgul of Cain into Yitro and Hevel into Moshe. There was a question that bothered someone. He was very bothered at the splitting of the sea. He was bothered. The rabbi at the time there was making a speech and he spoke about... He spoke about Sus Virachbo Ramabayam. The horse and his rider 
were swallowed by the, the sea. Not only does Moshe sing that, but the women, it says Miriam came and she sang a song. And Miriam's song is limited to really one line. Sus And this person said, I understand why you want to kill the Egyptian soldier in the water. Why you want to mix him up. Why you want to take him in. But what the horse do? What did the horse do? Why is the horse going down with the, with the soldier? Rashi brings Sus It's one entity. The horse and the rider, one entity. So I guess, wrong place, wrong time. And therefore, the horse goes. But one of the ways of understanding this idea of the sus is through this idea of Gilgul. The rabbis explain something. They ask a question. They say, during the ten plagues, we had one plague where the animals died. Another plague, the hail came. The animals who were outside died. Who were these horses that the Egyptians took to take to the sea? Weren't their horses all dead? And the rabbis say either they came from Egyptians who were fearful of Moshe, believed in Moshe, and took their horses and put them away, or they came from horses that the Egyptians took from Bnei Israel. Took from Bnei Israel. So these horses were saying, or horses of Sadiqim, or righteous horses. It makes the question even more. Why should those horses die with their riders? So I saw a very interesting story. I told it over a few years ago. Moshe will remember it, I think. There was a certain rabbi. He went to visit one of his chassidim. He was a wealthy man. And when he got to this man's estate, he saw this man had a beautiful estate, many horses, many animals. He was very wealthy. And he went to see the man's horses and he saw there was this one small, small horse. And this small horse was working so hard. And he was doing the work of 10, 20 horses, just didn't stop. And the rabbi said to the, to the chassid, to his student, he said to him, listen, this horse is amazing. Can I have this horse? And the man said, Rebbe, this horse is, really does the work of 10, 20 horses. I have no horse like him. He's really the, the center of my stables. I really need him. He says, no problem. He says, tell me about the other business details you do. And he says, well, also, we do business, we sell this, we do that. He goes, do you loan money to people? He goes, yeah, we loan a lot of money to people. He goes, and, and do you keep records of the loans? He goes, yeah, of course, Rabbi, we keep records of the loans. And he says, Rabbi, he says to him, what about people who don't pay their debt? You have records of those? He says, Rabbi, I have too many of those. I have a whole book of people who don't pay their debts. He says, can I see the book? He says, yeah, Rabbi, you can see the book. He says, tell me about this one. Can I buy the debt from you and then I can go collect it? He says, Rabbi, this one you don't want to buy. He says, what do you mean? Why not? He goes, Rabbi, this guy borrowed money from me. Didn't pay me for years. I went after him again and again, tried to give him whatever he could do. And then one day he went and he died, left no money behind. This piece of paper, Rabbi, is worthless. He says, so can I buy it from you? What do you mean, Rabbi? What do you want to buy it from me? It's worthless. You can't collect anything. I give you one ruble. You make money. Is it worth it for you to sell it to me? He goes, Rabbi, it's yours as a gift. No, let me give you the ruble. Okay. Here, Rabbi, take it. 
The man takes the paper. He looks at the paper. He says, I consider this debt forgiven. The man owes no more money. And he takes the paper and he tears it up. And he goes and he sits down with the man to eat. And a little while later, the stable manager comes to the table and he says, Sir, I have terrible news for you. He says, what happened? He goes, you know the small horse that works so hard? He just died out of the blue. And the man puts his hand on his head and he says, Rabbi, did the horse die because I did something I didn't give him to you? Was it because I disrespected you that caused the horse to die? And the rabbi said, absolutely, chas v'shalom, no. He says, when I came here, I saw this horse. And this horse I saw had a neshama of a person. And I wondered, who is it that's working so hard? And I saw that this neshama was this person who borrowed money from you. And he left the world without being able to pay you back. And his punishment was to come back as a sus, as a horse, and to work for you, and in some way pay off his debt. And when I saw how hard he was working, I had such rachmanut. I wanted to release him from his gilgul and allow him to move on. And therefore, I asked you to allow me to buy the debt and allow this horse to move on. Rabbeinu Ari writes that a person doesn't only come back as a person. Chas v'shalom, we could do things that we come back as a rock. We could do things we come back as grass. We could do things we come back as an animal. He says, and there's something very interesting in this. When we come back as a Gilgul of another person, we have absolutely no idea who we were in the previous lifetime. No idea what we did, how we did it, who we did. No idea. Just look at the thing we have the most difficult on us, that's what we have to repair. He says, but when a person comes back in Domem, in, 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 a, in a rock, in, a, in the grass, in a plant, in, a, in an animal, he knows exactly who he was. He knows exactly what his tikkun was. And his suffering is compounded because he can do so little about it. And therefore the person has to come back and do this tikkun. So I thought, Sus Maybe these horses had done something in a previous life. And they came back in order to be metaked. And they were these special horses who were given the opportunity to be metaked. You know, the rabbis tell you, you eat the fish on Shabbat, dag, seven, on Yom Dag, on the seventh day, a person's going to live to eat dag, the fish of the Leviathan, in the year dag, 7,000 of Mashiach. The rabbis also say that many times there's a gilgul in the fish, and when you eat the fish with a proper beracha, the level of that neshamah goes up on Shabbat. There's so much aspect of sword of gilgul. There's so much aspect that we don't understand of a world hidden from us. But we have to understand Hashem makes everything perfect. Hashem fixes everything. He does everything in such a way to take care of the system, to right the wrongs, and to allow anyone, allow anyone to, to go up to the next level. We have this opportunity of giving us the Torah, of learning the mitzvot, of the shulchan aruch, of trying to understand the meaning, the reasons behind the mitzvot, of seeing who we are, of having this introspection, of looking at who we are. We have no mizbeach to bring the sacrifice, which is the way to bind these four elements together, the different aspects of our own soul. But we do have the opportunity to learn, 
and to look at ourselves and to see what we can do, how we can fix, how we can make the world better. It's a challenge, a challenge each of us has every single day. We don't understand the world Hashem created. It's very hard to understand why, how, what, who. But we have to understand the perfection in Hashem's world. And we are a part of that perfection. And we have an opportunity. We have to understand that that opportunity is going with the system. It's understanding that it's there for us. It's there for us to fix. It's there for our benefit. Because whatever Hashem does, He does for the beauty of us. This unbelievable information about Gilgulim will help us to overcome in this lifetime any of the challenges. And Bezrat Hashem, we should all meet, like we say, we should all meet in Surah Chaim, in the place that we're bound as a single soul. Adam was a single soul, messed up, and spread us all apart. Each of us has some small aspect to fix in order to create the perfect unity of us coming together. Bezrat Hashem, we're doing it. We'll continue to do it. Hashem will see us doing it. He'll help us doing it. And He'll bring Mashiach. Amen. Thank you everybody for joining us. Sorry we went a little over, but I thought that story was really, really, really effective uh, for what we were learning.